Okay. <clears throat> so if you've been with us the last few weeks, you know we've been conducting a special study of baptism, right? And uh, baptism and trying to show some things as to what, what it's all about. Is it essential to salvation, to the process of becoming a child of God? And we've looked at many scriptures uh, in the New Testament, particularly looking in Acts and the things that the apostles were doing after the church was established, after the day of Pentecost, and then looking at the conversions that were occurring and how baptism played a major role in each one of these and how the apostles were preaching this, that they needed to repent and be baptized for the remission of their sins. And then we looked at the letters of Peter and Paul and how important it was to each of them and how they preached baptism. It was part of that gospel message, part of the good news that they were carrying out in their walk with God and their life as Christians, as, as apostles. And then we looked at several objections people have today uh, when they read the Word and try to, try to say, well, baptism is not an essential part of the plan of salvation. And they give various reasons for that, of course. And one was the thief on the cross. I'm sure you've heard that many times. How the thief on the cross was saved without being baptized, right? And then we studied that and looked at it a little more in depth. And we understood that the command to baptize all nations had not been given yet. That was not until right before Jesus' ascension. So he's on the cross. They're still under the old law. We know the law was nailed to the cross. So it might as well have been David or, or Moses or anybody like that, right, that you could say that about, right? Well, he saved David and Moses. Well, yeah, they're in heaven. We know they're with God. But baptism was not commanded at that time. It was not something that was a command for us to obey as we see today. So we talked about the fact that the thief on the cross is not relevant. It's not really relevant to that question of whether baptism is essential to salvation. And then we looked at Cornelius and his household, the Gentile centurion who was a devout man but did not know the gospel. And we talked about how he was told to seek out Peter who would deliver to him words by which he would be saved. And then many will say, well, while Peter was speaking, the spirit fell on Peter on Cornelius and his household. So he had to have been saved before he was baptized. But yet we read Peter's account as he's at the Jerusalem council saying as he began to speak, the spirit fell on him. And then who was he to hinder them from being baptized? And when you mesh that up with the words being spoken that they might be saved, we realize that they weren't saved until they obeyed that gospel. Just because they received the Spirit didn't mean they were saved. In fact, we talked about how that was more of an example to Peter and his traveling companions to understand that the gospel was for more than just the Jews, more than just the house of Israel, that it was for the Gentiles. And then we also look in 1 Corinthians, Paul's statement as he's writing to the Corinthian brethren, and he's saying, I was sent to preach, not to baptize. I was sent to preach the gospel, not to baptize. And how many will use that statement and say, well, it must not have been that important to Paul if he's going to make a statement like that. But then when you look at the context of the situation, there were divisions being made in the Corinthian church based on who had baptized the people. And they were saying, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Peter, I'm of Paul, whoever had baptized them. And he's trying to rebuke that. He says, no, 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 no. You're of Jesus Christ because you have been baptized into him. And he prayed, was thankful that he had not baptized many, although he had some. So we saw how that statement doesn't hold up. And then we saw how many 
will say that baptism is a work, right? And you're not saved by work. So how does that have anything to do with your salvation, right? But we really looked in that in depth. And in fact, we saw really baptism is the most passive thing you can do, right? In fact, you don't really do anything. It's done to you, right? And we're talking about how it's not a work of merit. Sure, it's a thing done, but it's a work of the Spirit. It's a work of God. He's the one doing the work. He's the one adding you to the church. He's the one forgiving you of your sins. So, in these previous studies, we've seen how baptism is essential. And really, all you got to do is read Acts 2, 38, or Mark 16, 16. Repent ye and be baptized for the remission of your sins. So you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. I mean, you can't get really any plainer than that right there, right? Oh, you can try to wordsmith it and try to make it sound something different and, and look over here and look over there, but that's it. Peter preached that to the folks at the day of Pentecost, and 3,000 were added to the church by God that day. We also read in Matthew 28 how becoming disciples means going out into all the nations and preaching the gospel, making disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. And that's part of it. And that's that command we were talking about that Jesus gave the disciples before he ascended back into heaven. To go out into all the world and preach the gospel, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. And then last week we looked at something else. Not so much uh, objections to the essentiality of baptism, but we looked at some of the Greek words around baptize and baptism and how the Greek words mean something specific, right? And how in the Greek, and you can look at any Greek lexicon today, any valid one, any good one, and you can see that the word actually meant to immerse, to dip, or to plunge. And how today, that word, well not today, a few years back, that word was actually transliterated, not translated. You know, the scripture is a translation from the Greek in the New Testament, Hebrew in the Old. And those who translated it would, of course, try to have an English word that was the same as what they read in the Greek or as close as they could get. But when it came to the word baptizo or baptisma, they didn't translate it. They transliterated it. They simply took the Greek word and plugged in the English letters to make it sound English. Baptize instead of baptizo, baptism instead of baptisma. Why did they do that? What was the reason? Well, we mentioned that last week, and then go back and look at church history. When was the New Testament translated in English originally in the King James? Around 1611, King James I, um, had it done, right? Requisitioned it, commissioned it. And those who translated it by that time were already, had, well, in the church at that time, they were already doing things like sprinkling in baptism, pouring water on, not necessarily immersing. So, like most other things, politics got involved, and they decided simply to transliterate the word rather than translate it to English. Because really, if you read Acts 2.38, it should say, repent and be immersed for the remission of sins. If you really want to understand what the Greek word meant way back when. So, we have this today. And we understand that baptism means immersion. It can only mean immersion. We saw how pouring and sprinkling do not fit with these figures used to describe baptism in the New Testament. 
and that scholars are unanimous in saying that the Greek word meant to immerse. Yes, ma'am. In Turkey? Uh, in it, Turkey. Yeah. And it is a baptistry where they had to go down into the water. Yeah. Not a pedestal where they could. Yeah. Yeah, I would imagine most old churches had something like that or they went down to the river if they didn't. But yeah, very good. Yeah. Linda says that she's visited a church in Turkey from the first century. They actually had a baptistry built into it. So that's, 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 that's in, interesting. They, they knew what it meant in the Greek. They knew that the word meant immersion. <clears throat> so, we've seen these things. We've seen the scholars say this. We've seen from Scripture that it means to immerse. And we'll get into that in a second. So, really we have two more questions that remain then. Uh, one is, after, since we've proved that, or we've shown that uh, baptism is immersion, then another practice that goes on today, we have to ask, should infants be baptized because we know this is a practice that's carried out, right? In fact, there might be some of you in here that were baptized as an infant. We also know, we also want to answer the question, and we'll look at this more next week, is there ever a need <coughs> to be rebaptized? So today we're going to look at infant baptism, and the first point we want to consider with this is, is uh, about the Bible baptism that we read. In other words, with immersion and so forth. We've already seen that pouring or sprinkling is not really baptism. It's just pouring or sprinkling, right? Because baptism means to immerse. Therefore, <clears throat> when you talk about infant baptism, it's really a misnomer, right? It's really more like infant pouring or infant sprinkling because who in the world is going to immerse an infant, right? And call it baptism. Infant pouring, infant sprinkling are really the more accurate terms you might say about that. <clears throat> Only if the infant was immersed could you really say it's infant baptism. We've, we've seen that. So, what, what else can we say then? If, only, if immersion is not the only thing which constitutes Bible baptism, what else can we look at? Well, we read this last week, but turn over to Acts chapter 8, and let's just read a few verses there that we've read before, but let's look at it again. Acts chapter 8, and let's begin with uh, verse 34. Acts 8, 34. So the eunuch answered Philip and said, I ask you, of whom does the prophet say this, of himself or some other man? And Philip opened his mouth, and beginning in this scripture, he's talking about preaching the gospel, where he's reading about Jesus, and beginning in this scripture, preached Jesus to him. Now as they went down the road, they came to water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? And then notice this verse. Then Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. So he commanded the chariot to stand still, and both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and he baptized him. And now when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught Philip away, so that the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. All right. Here we have an interesting statement. Philip says, if you believe with all your heart, you may. Well, what's the big deal about that? 
Well, he's telling the eunuch that something has to happen before you can be baptized in water, be immersed. What is that? He has to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. He has to believe that he is the Son of God. He has to believe that he was sacrificed for his sin, just like we do today. So something has to occur before that immersion. So if you believe with all your heart you may, we also see that in Mark 16, 16. Those who believe and are baptized shall be saved. Are infants capable of belief? Well, isn't that kind of obvious? I mean, I, I guess, I don't guess we've ever known an infant to say, I believe. So I guess in essence, you really don't know for sure. What do you do? Infants can't believe. It's not possible. So that statement that Philip made to the eunuch could not be made to an infant. Okay, interesting. What else does, has to happen before a baptism? Acts 2.38. Repent and be baptized for the remission of your sins. Something else that has to occur. Can an infant repent? No, of course not. Silly to even consider the question, really, right? Okay, two things there, belief and repentance that have to occur before baptism. We have that from the Scripture. If one is a penitent believer, they may be baptized. Infants are incapable of this. So, in the strict sense of the word, infant baptism is not really baptism. As we said, it's more just you're just pouring water or sprinkling a baby. All right? It's only for those who believe and who are penitent. <coughs> well, that begs the question, right? I mean, back of your mind, you got to think, well, why is this even practiced? Where does infant baptism even come in? Why, why did that get started? How did that happen? Well, in church history, you may have heard about this idea of original sin. Right? And I'm sure many of you have heard this. Maybe all of you have heard this. I'm sure you have different ideas about what it is, or maybe you just have always kind of wondered what it is. <clears throat> we know that many who later approved infant baptism could not prove it from the scripture. In fact, in your outline, and I'll just read a couple. <clears throat> this is from Martin Luther, actually, on redemption. He said, It cannot be proved by the sacred scriptures that infant baptism was instituted by Christ or begun by the first Christians after the apostles. You see, this was occurring at the time of Martin Luther, who lived in the 1500s. King James Version is not translated until 1611. So this is already going on before the first English translation. Another infant baptism was established neither by Christ nor the apostles. In all places where we find the necessity of baptism notified, either in a dogmatic or historical point of view, it is evident that it was only meant for those who were capable of comprehending the word preached, you now being converted in Christ by an act of their own will. This is from the article on baptism in Keto's Encyclopedia of Biblical Literature. So, all these are true. When did infant baptism begin? Well, most likely around 200 A.D. It wasn't but a couple hundred years after Jesus lived that this began to happen. It became, it started because of the idea of original sin. And of course, we don't need to get, I'm not going to get into all that today, other than the fact that we will talk about that just a little bit to explain it. 
Some understand that it refers to inheriting the fallen nature of Adam. Some would say it's not necessarily any personal guilt of his, but simply saying that because Adam fell from grace, all who are born into this world are born into sin. Some would also say, well, it's actually because of the guilt of his sin. If we're all ascended from Adam, then we assume his guilt when we're born in this world. All right? This is understanding, uh, this, is the, this is the idea behind the practice of infant baptism. If they're born into the world in sin, they need to be baptized for forgiveness of sins, right? Well, let's just think about that. If a baby can't believe, if an infant can't repent, does an infant have sin? Is that really true? Is Adam's guilt passed on to a baby? Do these things really occur? Well, let's turn over to Ezekiel and just read a couple of verses there. Now, I'm going to read scriptures to you, but I know you're probably thinking, of course not! It makes no sense, right? Yeah, and there's lots of things that you have to deal with that make no sense when you think about it, but you need to go to the scripture and prove it because that's the ultimate authority, right? So let's turn over to Ezekiel. If I can get over there. Turn to uh, chapter 18. And let's just read a few verses from Ezekiel 18, verse 19. Yet you say, why should the son not bear the guilt of the father? Because the son has done what is lawful and right and has kept all my statutes and observed them. He shall surely live. In other words, he's saying here, that's why the son doesn't bear the guilt. He's kept my statutes. He's kept the law. The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not bear the guilt of the father, nor the father bear the guilt of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. In other words, Ezekiel saying, you're responsible for yourself. You're not responsible for the sin of someone else. Sure, you should be rebuking them. Sure, you should be looking out for each other, but you're not responsible for their sin. That doesn't make you guilty because your father sinned. <clears throat> Interesting, right? Turn over to, chapter, to Romans now. Let's read a few, couple verses from there. Romans 7. <clears throat> this is Paul rebuking those in Rome who are saying, well, now that we're saved, we can just sin. No big deal, right? We're saved. Verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would not have known covetous unless the law had said, you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire. For apart from the law, sin was dead. I was alive once without the law. But when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment, which was to bring life, I found to bring death. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by it killed me. Therefore the law is holy, and the commandment holy, just, and good. Now, we could get into a whole thing about 
when the, what the law did, how the law is dead now, what the law did as far as sin, bringing in knowledge of sin. Paul is saying that cared, but if you notice in there, he's saying once I was alive because I didn't know what sin was. I didn't know it until I, the law showed it to me. The commandments showed it to me. In other words, before he could understand what it meant, before he could understand that there is sin in the world and I have to obey certain commands and seek out the will and see what's right and what's wrong and try to do things the right way to understand the truth. He described a time in his life when he was alive before he became a sinner. So if there's this original sin where a baby's born into sin, then that would make no sense, right? How could you be alive to, if you're full of sin? Yes, ma'am. Yeah. Debbie says that Jesus even says the innocent children, right? Talks about the innocent children as he's caressing them. Yes, absolutely. <coughs> so, we know that children are born free from sin. Clean slate, right? No understanding of right and wrong yet. That's something they're going to have to learn. Eventually, if they live long enough, they're going to become accountable for their actions because they'll understand the truth. They'll understand the difference between right and wrong. They'll understand the law, right? We know what's right or wrong because of that law. All right. One of the interesting features about this, though, we need to read about, and, and you may not have considered this. Turn over to the book of Hebrews. Interesting comments, I want, interesting verses I want you to look at. Hebrews chapter 8. Now let's see what the Hebrew writer has to say. Beginning verse 6. That's not me, is it? No. I was going to say, I keep hearing it over there. I'm not sure it's over here. Okay. Verse, uh, verse 6, Hebrews 8, verse 6. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry, inasmuch as he is also mediator of a better covenant, which was established on better promises. He's referring to Jesus Christ, the ultimate high priest. The, the book of Hebrews talks a lot about the practices that occurred under the law with the, house, with the children of Israel, and how the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies once a year on the Day of Atonement to roll their sins forward didn't really forgive them, but they had that practice. And the Hebrew writer talks a lot about how Jesus is now that high priest. He's better. He's the one now is that mediator that provides that connection to the Father, that ability for us to go right into the throne room and approach him and pray and talk to him. Verse 7, For if that first covenant, the old law, had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. Because finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant. And I disregarded them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind, and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Notice this verse. None of them shall teach his neighbor, and none his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me, 
from the least of them to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. And that, he says, a new covenant he has made the first obsolete. Now that, now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Interesting verse there, right? He says, none of them shall teach his neighbor and none his brother, saying, know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. Now, if you read that verse on the surface, it kind of sounds like he's saying, well, the Great Commission's already happened, right? It's done. Everybody knows. Is that what that really means, though? Let's think about that for a minute. One of the most notable features about the New Covenant is that none of, the, uh, none of those in the kingdom are ignorant of the Lord, right? Unlike the Old Covenant, when a people enter the covenant of the Old Law, when the Jews or the Israelites entered the covenant under the Old Law, how did they enter it? Born, right? They were born into it. Infants, we already stated, don't know about the Lord, right? They don't understand. They don't have that ability to believe yet. So the Jews, when they were born into the house of Israel, had to be taught about the Lord. They had to know the Lord. They had to learn. They were already in the covenant. And even the boys, after eight days, were circumcised. The sign of the covenant, the sign of the covenant they've entered. But they didn't know the Lord yet, right? So when infant baptisms practice, this feature might be, in, you might say that's more valid under the old law. Because under the new law, we have to know before we enter the covenant, right? John 3, 5, you have to be born again of water and the Spirit, Jesus told the Godemus. But to do that, we see what? We have to believe. In other words, we have to believe with all our heart and mind before we enter into that covenant with him in the New Testament. Interesting feature, right? Can an infant know? No. Can an infant enter the new covenant knowing the Lord? No. We go back to Hebrews 11, not Hebrews 8, 11 there. He saw what he says. They're going to know me. They're going to know me under this covenant as they enter. So, maybe that helps understand that verse a little more, what it's referring to, right? <clears throat> so, this distinctive feature of the new covenant is true only when baptism occurs after belief. We enter a covenant relationship with the Lord today if we're penitent believers. Repent and are baptized, right? Those who enter the covenant have already been taught about the Lord with the gospel of Christ. Now, that don't mean you've got to know everything about the Lord. Don't get me wrong there. But you've got to believe that he is God. He is the Son of God. He died for me, and now I have a hope as I enter that covenant relationship. Okay, so, interesting concepts to me, infant baptism is just, it's just common sense, right? I mean, it's just, it's, it's no-brainer, right? I mean, what's the point? But many people don't know the Scripture, right? In fact, I guess Catholicism and a few others, that's something they just do, right? People just go and do it, not knowing what the Bible really says about it. 
Yeah, they just do it because it's a practice. Should infants be baptized? Well, do we have an example of it in the New Testament? Nope. I mean, if there was an example, maybe we might have to consider it. Do they meet the prerequisites of faith repentance? Nope. Can they know the Lord somehow before they enter into the relationship through baptism? No. None of these things can happen. So, if none of these things can happen when a baby is baptized, it's not valid, right? It is a false practice, false doctrine. To baptize infants makes that verse in Hebrews 8 completely meaningless. So the logical conclusion is, biblical evidence is babies do not need to be baptized. They're born without the guilt of their ancestors. And actually, when you think about it, even if you were to say they were with sin, they've never been lost, right? So some of well, babies are saved. Well, really, you could just say they're safe, right? Because they've never really been lost, so they didn't need to be saved from anything. Just an interesting concept to think about there. It's not until that child becomes old enough to understand there is truth, there is a right and wrong, there's good and evil, and they are accountable for their actions. Now, there's somebody say, well, when is that? Well, there's no set time or date or age. You know, children reach that time in different ages, right? All children mature at different levels. Yes, sir. saying we there are he he's known of a guy that converted from he was a church of Christ brother and converted to Catholicism and he's saying you have to be able to teach from the scriptures it's not just common sense and that's very true absolutely we need to be able to make a defense for our faith at all times from the truth from the word right and that's one of the reasons we've been doing this study too is I want you to understand things be able to see reasons why we believe the way we do and why others uh, and how we can defend that faith when others might be talking about some of this. That's something you need to be able to talk about and, and uh, prove, prove out to someone. So we understand that babies are safe. They don't need to be saved. And another good example of that is, I wanna, I wanna show you this. Turn over to 2 Samuel, and you may, you may know this, but just another good example of this. 2 Samuel chapter 12. And uh, 2 Samuel chapter 12, if you get over there, and let's, uh, 
This is, uh, we're going to begin in verse 13. This is King David after his baby has died, the one that, he, that Bathsheba bore to him after she became pregnant in the illicit affair that he had with her. And let's begin reading in verse 13. The prophet Nathan is coming to him, and uh, he, God has sent Nathan to him to rebuke him for what he's done. And so David says, Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. However, because by his deed you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also who was born to you shall surely die. And then Nathan departed his house. So he's telling David, you have repented, you will not die, but the child is going to die. You're going to have, there's going to be a consequence because of your sin. And the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife born, born to David, and it became ill. David therefore pleaded with God for the child. And David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. So the elders of his house arose and went to him to raise him up from the ground. But he would not, nor did he eat food with them. Then on the seventh day it came to pass the child died. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. Why, you can imagine why. For they said, indeed, while the child was alive, we spoke to him and he would not heed our voice. How can we tell him that the child is dead? He may do some harm. When David saw that his servants were whispering, David perceived that the child was dead. Therefore David said to his servants, is the child dead? And they said, he is dead. So David arose from the ground, washed and anointed himself, changed his clothes, and he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then he went to his own house, and when he requested, they set food before him, and he ate. Then his servants said to him, What is this that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive? But when the child died, you rose and ate food? And he said, While the child was alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, Who can tell whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live? Even though he had been told that the child's going to die, he's still hoping, he's still praying that he gets to stay alive, that God will change his mind. But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. Now think about that for a minute. If the child was in sin, where would he be? Well, hell, right? And so David's saying, I'm going to go to him. In other words, he's going to go to hell. And you think David really thinks that he's going to go to hell? He just repented of the sin. He's been told he's not going to die. So if you think about that, he's going to go to him in heaven. So in that sense, how can a child have sin? Be full of guilt from his ancestors not possible. David had sin, absolutely. We know that. But his child did not. His child's in heaven. David's basically stating right there. We've talked many times how David really true was a prophet, right? The Psalms, we read them, they're songs, they're poetry, but they're also prophecy. He knew that. He knew that the child was in heaven. He knew that he was going to go there one day because he was a man of God. And yeah, he sinned, he failed, but he repented, and he was going to be in heaven with God one day and with that child. So another, another example there of the guiltlessness of children. 
Emily said she has a friend who says, well, I'll baptize a child. Why don't you baptize again? Absolutely. I, I've dealt with, I, I have a colleague at work. I've told that just a couple weeks ago. She, she was raised Catholic. I had to tell her that. And she says, why? So what? You know? Yeah. Yeah, Methodists did the same thing. Yes, sir. Yeah, baptized or sprinkled. Yeah, if they were poured or sprinkled, they're not really baptized. That's something you could say. We aren't really immersed, right? But yeah, we have to believe and we have to repent. It's hard, yeah, when someone like that that don't even want to hear you, you can't, unless they want to sit down and study with you, you know, they're not going to hear it. And you can say, well, you need to be baptized for the remission of your sins. But until they are ready to understand it and really get into the scripture, they're not going to change, absolutely. And that's a tough one. When you have friends you know that are in that situation, right? Tough deal. But there may, as I said before, there may be some of you in here, I don't know, that were baptized or sprinkled as an infant who've never done anything about it. And we've just described today why you need to be baptized or immersed for the remission of sins, which we've been talking about for the last few weeks. So, as I've said many times before, today is as good a day as any to make that decision and change that, become a true child of God. We're going to spend one more week on baptism, and then that will be it. We're going to talk about rebaptism next week, and then we're going to begin a study on creation, which I think will be an interesting study. Um, whether creation is six days or six eons, six ages, and the evolution of that and so forth. We'll talk a little bit about that stuff. And that'll begin in a couple weeks. All right. Our time is up. Thanks for being here today. <laughs>